Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 107, The Big Goodbye. It was a hot, dark evening when the silence was broken with the faint screech of a radio being tuned. There was danger around every corner. Taking a walk down a long alleyway might be a very short trip. The sound of the radio got louder as my pulse quickened and the sweat of my brow dripped down over my nose. What were they saying? Was there a message for me? As I listened more closely, I heard the host say, Welcome in to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Ken, we might as well say today's show is brought to you by Bang Bang, maker of the sweetest little automatic. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's excellent. That's you know, it didn't even occur to me that that was tied it back in. It tied did a little it back bit. In. Yes, it did. It did uh-huh. a little bit. I think after after they left the holodeck, they all probably went and enjoyed a nice game of Fizbin. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, today we are talking about the big goodbye, and uh, you know, it, it's interesting. It, it's an episode of Next Gen where we spend very little time in our our commonly known uh, uh, sets of the Enterprise. So it really, you know, this show looks and feels so different, totally immersive for the characters in it. I I like it when they change things up like that a bit. So that is what we're talking about today. And yet... Holodeck gone awry. I was going to say, we are on the Enterprise the whole time, so already your mind is blown. You you know, we we skip this one thing that we always do. We tell people what it is that we actually do on Mission Log for people tuning in for the first time. Oh, and welcome, if you are. Yeah, Yeah. we go go through and watch an episode of Star Trek or a telling of Star Trek of some sort and take it apart for messages, morals, and meanings and try to figure out whether the whole thing uh, does stand the test of time. Um, Yeah, the big goodbye. Hey, yep. uh, before we before we move uh, much further into this whole thing, I want to remind people about uh, about this uh, place, this thing that we've got, because, you know, we've got a bunch of places where you can find us mm-hmm. online. And of course, we'll be telling people about those later. But there's a really cool website that we're tied into, you know, sort of kind of uh, Roddenberry dot com would be an excellent place for people to check out. There's a bunch of, uh, you know, interesting stuff there. You get an idea of, of all the stuff that Roddenberry is into, not just, uh, you know, this podcast, not just Star Trek stuff, but a whole bunch of other things, too. There's also a shop there, and I gotta say, there is a there's a game there that I have played. When I went to my first Star Trek convention um, a couple of years ago, as we record this, uh, they were they were selling a, a, a game called Red Shirts. It is a card game, and it's really cool because the whole point of the card game is to kill red shirts. It's just absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I mean, so, so well, I mean, that's theoretically the point. Basically, you've got missions that you're doing, and then you and then you play the appropriate red shirt, and you play the appropriate modifiers, and uh, and and the idea is the 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 player who runs out of red shirts first wins, but the problem <laughs> is the player that you're playing against is trying to give you more red shirts the whole time, and wow. and trying to make sure that you're uh, trying to make sure that your mission actually succeeds, so that your red <laughs> shirts live and their red shirts die. Uh, if you're a fan of the original series specifically, you'll, you'll see a lot of characters that are recognizable. Of course, none by name, because this is not officially a Star Trek game. This is officially a game that, you know, looks a whole lot <laughs> like something. <laughs> like, like, like from uh, Warped Twisted Minds that have maybe thought about Star Trek a little bit too much. Uh, a tremendous amount of fun. I actually think, because I played it for close to six or seven months after the convention with a friend of mine. And I think that um, I think I was playing it wrong. 
and still it was incredibly enjoyable. So, uh, so that's wow. one thing to check out on Roddenberry.com. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff there too. It's not just about selling you things. It's also about keeping you informed on a bunch of the, uh, on a bunch of the Roddenberry type stuff. All right. I, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by red shirts now. <laughs> it's it's no cool. cards against humanity. <laughs> well, no. But it is cards against landing parties. So, you, <laughs> right. you know, uh, kind of a fun thing there. Cool. All right. So uh, let, let's get back to the topic at hand then, uh, the big goodbye. And uh, if you'll indulge me, it's time for trivia. Go for it. All right. So today's show is written by Tracy Torme. And can you may remember and our audience may remember, we might we, we just might have given uh, a little bit of grief to Tracy Torme's last episode, which was last week, and that was Haven. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. So, yeah. <laughs> so he gets to come back this week, and uh, we'll see how you do, Tracy. Um, now, it's entertaining that he actually gave himself the historic job of having penned the Dixon Hill novels that are referenced in the episode. And uh, it, you can look on the monitor that Data is reading on the bridge when he's trying to familiarize himself with Dixon Hill, that all those old books are written by Tracy Torme. Forgive me, so. did he ever actually go back and write any of them? <laughs> no, I don't, I, I don't know that he did, actually. That, that would be a pretty brilliant thing Okay, you, you, you do what you're doing, and I'm going to look it up. Because, okay, all right. Because right. that has to be the reason that he made himself the author of them, right? It's a great idea. Well, it's the, the fiction within the fiction. Well, yeah, yeah but then yeah, you yeah. can also, I mean, I don't know if you know this about Star Trek fans. Mm-hmm. They're a little obsessive. So, really? I mean, it, it's, really? it's possible that had Tracy Torme started writing Dixon Hill novels, then that you would have had a bunch them. of people reading neo-noir, you know, in the late 80s, right. early 90s, to find out all it. about, you know, the adventures of Dixon Hill and uh, and his foe, Cyrus Redblock. I love it. So um, there is a, a, a clue here as to exactly when this episode takes place. We know from the newspaper that Picard picks up in the holodeck that the holodeck simulation takes place right after Joe DiMaggio's June 25th, 1941, 37th consecutive hit, in his 56-game hitting streak. I thought it was a nice way to indicate exactly where we are in time. And uh, Data says that the record will stand until the year 2026. And if you know anything about Mission Log, you know that you'll be able to tune in to us in 2026 to hear how that turns out. Um, Dixon Hill's phone number on his business card is Prospect 4631. Uh, if you translate that, that'd be 774631. And Ken, I, I included this because I thought it might be interesting to people who maybe don't know what that is. Like sometimes you see an old movie and you hear somebody say a phone number, but with a word in front of it. Probably the most famous is the song Pennsylvania 65000. Mm-hmm. And this was a common way to distinguish exchanges in the early days of phone usage. And uh, there was a, a two-letter, four-number system, and that's like Dixon Hill's phone number, that was in effect from uh, the 20s through the 50s in some cities, not not all cities. Other cities had three letters and five numbers, and you could give an exchange up to 10,000 numbers. So if you had prospect, so you're dialing PR, and on the keypad, that's 77, you had numbers 0000 up through 9999. Wasn't it... um Empire Carpets out of Chicago that had National 29000 as theirs. It was, and, and the thing is, we grew up in the 80s, but mm-hmm. we also mm-hmm. were the first generation that just had cable everywhere you went, right? 
Right, right. And then you would find, like, like if you listen to 1010 Winds as we record this today, they've still got the teletype noise playing in the background. <laughs> I can't imagine there's actually a teletype anywhere, but they're keeping that right. sort of old tradition of, of well, we're going to have this news sound, right? Right. So in, into the 80s, at least, and maybe into the 90s, there was somebody that used to advertise on WGN, which was one of the cable stations that was all over the eastern seaboard anyway, mm-hmm. out of Chicago. And their jingle was um, uh, call National 29000. Right. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that now. And, yeah. and it's interesting. There are websites where you can go and kind of put in your phone number mm-hmm. and then get, you know, get a, a a letter translation of what the numbers would be. And then some of those would be the leading numbers, the exchange numbers. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of people in today's audience who probably don't know what that is. And I'm kind of always fascinated by the idea of, you know, the fake phone number in a movie or a TV show, because sometimes they are real numbers and sometimes clever marketers will attach that to to a, a voice message that you'll get if you call that number. Um, but of course, 555 is the exchange that leads nowhere. And uh, some movies, uh, like in the Blues Brothers, uh, I know that uh, it, I, I don't think it's actually said in the movie, but there's a business card or something that has Klondike 5 and then the rest of the number. And Klondike KL is 55. Right. So you're just leading it with 555 because it's a number that goes nowhere. So, yeah, interesting little bit of trivia there. And uh, finally, we, you know, this episode has got some fantastic guest appearances. So I want to mention three in particular. Uh, Dick Miller is the man at the newspaper stand who, uh, well, he, he doesn't sell, but rather he loans uh, Dixon Hills uh, Picard a, uh, a newspaper. Mm-hmm. And the guy was just in a tremendous number of TV shows. And he really kind of got his start through Roger Corman. Uh, so he, he was, you know, one of Corman's regularly rotating cast members uh, who was in a lot of his movies. He was actually in the Corman version of Little Shop of Horrors, which uh, you may have seen. And then uh, Lawrence Tierney is Cyrus Redblock. Could not have been better cast. I mean, it's interesting that this guy, you know, his earliest credits go back to the early 40s. And he was in a lot of movies that this episode kind of apes the style of. So he is well aware of the kind of character that he was doing by the time he got to do this show. And uh, finally, Harvey Jason as Mr. Leach. Um, again, you know, terrific character actor. And this is sort of doing his uh, his Peter Laurie impression, if you can say that Lawrence Tierney is doing his Sidney Greenstreet impression. But uh, Harvey Jason was in a lot of TV. Um, he, he was in Batman, Girl from Uncle. And he was actually a regular on Laugh-In. Oh, I'm sorry, are you done? I, 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 was, doing, I was doing what I said <laughs> yeah. I was doing. I was, I yeah, was looking yeah. up the whole Dixon Hill thing. Um, according to uh, just a very quick search, as long as it took since I said I was going to start doing that, mm-hmm. um, it looks like maybe there were a couple of uh, DC comics of Star Trek The Next Generation that took place in sort of the Dixon Hill universe, but it's Picard mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and Crusher, of course, Dr. Of Crusher. Course. Right. Um, but it does not look like anybody has done any writing on that, like actual novels. So as always, if you are looking for your way into the Star Trek universe and thus the Star Trek pantheon... Uh, yeah, get out the uh, get out the old Underwood and start clanging away on a Dixon Hill novel. From the management skills of Commodore Matt Decker to the motivational speaking of the lawyer in a shower curtain, Star Trek proves that even bad guys can have good ideas. And so today, words from a new tome: the quotable Cyrus Redblock. Life, said Cyrus, is an endless stream of choices. Just think about that. 
Captain Picard is under a lot of pressure. The current mission of the Enterprise is a diplomatic introduction with a notoriously prickly Harada, who expect the greeting Picard will recite to be absolutely perfect in their language. He's worn out, and Troy recommends a little R&R in the newly upgraded OS 10.10 holodeck. He chooses to explore the world of 1940s detective Dixon Hill, and the computer simulation is uncanny. There's the office, the secretary, and the femme fatale who informs the captain, or in this case, the captain as the central character Dixon Hill, that someone is trying to kill her. Act 1. The femme fatale, Jessica Bradley, offers a hundred bucks as a retainer for Dixon Hill to figure out who is trying to rub her out. Oh, is Picard so ready to play along. He pauses the program just as a possibly nefarious Mr. Leach is looking for Hill. At a staff meeting, Picard enthuses about the realism of the simulation. There is even a smudge of lipstick from Miss Bradley that indicates just how real the simulation is. He's ready to go back as soon as he finds the right wardrobe, and he invites Mr. Whalen, the ship's historian, to join him the next time on the holodeck. Now attired in a trench coat and fedora, Picard opens up his Dixon Hill program, joined by Whalen and Data, who has invited himself after studying the period. Both of them are in period-appropriate suits and hats. Act 2. Exploring the old noir world of San Francisco, Picard sees in a newspaper that Jessica Bradley has, as predicted, been murdered. There's a laundry list of suspects, but the only suspect the PD are interested in is Dixon Hill himself. He's kind of delighted at the idea he'll have to go downtown for questioning. In the real world, the Harada send a long-range scan that disrupts the Enterprise for a moment. Then, totally not on the schedule for a phone call, one of the Harada contacts the Enterprise to request Captain Picard's greeting, and it better come from Picard. A lowly crewman like Riker simply will not do. Riker dispatches Geordi LaForge to find the captain, and just about that time, Dr. Crusher is all dolled up in her 1940s finest attire to join her friends in the world of Dixon Hill. Something's not right, though. The holodeck doors and computer voice are kind of stuttering and not responding the way they should. So what, though? That can't mean anything is wrong. And Dr. Crusher walks in to find herself in a virtual police precinct where Dixon Hill is being interrogated. When LaForge arrives at the holodeck, he lets Riker know that something is up, the computer isn't responding, and he can't get in to find the captain. Act 3. Inside the program, the interrogation is going pretty rough, which is great as far as Picard is concerned, losing himself in the character. But seriously, he does need to get back to his real job at some point. Good thing Dixon Hill has a friend in the precinct. Officer McNary vouches for Hill, and it looks like Picard is free to get back to work once he takes the rest of his group to view Dixon Hill's office. When they arrive, though, they are held at gunpoint by a toady called Felix Leach, or is that a leech named Toad? Mr. Leach is dead serious, and little does Picard know that just on the other side of the wall, Riker, along with LaForge and Wesley, are desperately trying to fix the holodeck computer and call them home. The Haradans are getting impatient. Mr. Leach is growing impatient too, and he tells Dixon Hill that he has come to collect the object Hill was hired to find. When Whalen steps in, he's on the receiving end of Leech's gunfire. But this is no holodeck simulated bullet. This is the real deal. And Whalen is now bleeding real blood from his very real wound. 
Act 4. That fun little diversion in the holodeck just got real. Picard punches Leech, who goes scampering away, and Dr. Crusher says she needs to get Waylon back to the sickbay. When Picard calls for the holodeck exit to appear, nothing happens. They're trapped, and the rest of the Enterprise crew on the outside trying to free them have made no progress either. Into Dixon Hill's office walks gangster Cyrus Redblock, accompanied by Mr. Leach and another henchman. Redblock demands the object Hill was tasked with finding, and Redblock, though dedicated to civility, is still a brutal customer. McNary from the police station shows up to hang out with his pal Dixon, but he's rendered useless by Redblock's thug, too. Picard tries a new tactic now. He's going to tell the truth about who he is and who everyone else is in hope of escaping this deadly game. He tells Redblock that in his world, they have riches far beyond anything he could imagine. But Redblock doesn't care. He came for the object, and to prove his point, he'll start having his hostages killed, starting with Dr. Crusher. Act 5. Okay, 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 I have the item, Picard says. But first... Redblock has to agree to help them help Mr. Whalen. Around that same time, Wesley thinks he has had a breakthrough in the holodeck, and he informs Riker that the repair is risky no matter what. With permission, Wesley throws a switch, and on the inside, Picard and his team find themselves suddenly transported into a blizzard. It only lasts a few seconds, and then they're back in Dixon Hill's office. The doorway back to the Enterprise corridor opens up, too, and now Redblock is really intrigued. He tells his thug to kill everyone in the room once he and Mr. Leach have left. It's a short-lived victory, though. A moment after Redblock and Leach walk into the Enterprise corridor, they start to dematerialize, much to their own horror. Inside Dixon Hill's office, Data overpowers the remaining thug, then carries Whalen off to sickbay. Picard takes a moment to say goodbye to his... Well, Dixon's friend, McNary. Now McNary is having an existential worry. Once the program ends, what becomes of him and his world? Picard can't think about it too long, though. He's got an introduction to make, and he heads back to the bridge. When channels are open, he recites the Haradan greeting, and after just a moment, the Haradans reply that they are pleased. And then I guess they're done, because they waste no time in getting out of there. The end. Now, I'm wondering how the Haradans feel about uproarious applause. Yeah, because everybody on the bridge crew does that after, <laughs> after they give him the okay. Yeah, yeah, he's like, um, so, hi, you yeah. know, totally properly. Yeah. And the Haradans are like, oh, I like the way you say hi. We can yeah. do business. And then everybody starts screaming. <laughs> and then the Haradans come back and say, your clapping offends us. Exactly. Or what are you doing, killing your people now? No, no, no. We can't. Or are you killing enough of them? No? Well, then we... Yeah, <laughs> the Haradans are, are really weird customers about which we know nothing. Insect-like is what we hear. And, yes. you know, yeah. I will say that is true of insects. Very polite creatures. Yeah, they are. They're very, I no idea very, what that's about. I have polite. a... I have a question yeah. to ask you, and this is this is going to be a bigger thing than just the usual, hey, they did this, hey, they did this. What do you know about the way shows like this are written? Um, and specifically what I'm wondering about is, are writers directed to make sure that special attention is paid to a certain character? Because we've mm. talked about, I mean, you, you know, mm. this is the first time, I think, that we've had uh, two weeks in a row, or at least the first time that I've noticed, we had two weeks in a row from the same writer. Yeah. But he's not writing one arc, and yet he's putting Wesley front and center. Yeah. Which wouldn't necessarily be something that you would think to do, except we know that 
from the traveler that Wesley's going to be a big deal. And actually, a lot more attention has been paid to Wesley, or at least at least he's been put in a lot more uh, key situations than I remembered coming back into watching TNG for this show. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be the most natural thing to do, but obviously, this is part of his part of his education. This is part of raising him up. I mean, would that be in the Bible? Like, oh, by the way, if there's something tricky, technical, it's going to be Wesley who does it. No, they, well, that's not in the Bible. I mean, the, writer, the, the Bi- writer's Bible, not the Bible Bible. Well, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Because he doesn't. Yeah. He's not mentioned until Revelations in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the signs, um, actually. Uh, the only thing that is mentioned about Wesley is that it, you know he he is a member of the crew. So along with all the other you know cast and crew right. descriptions that you get, he is described, and he is described as being a technological whiz kid. Yes. Okay, but. There's nothing in terms of direction that says, okay, you have to have this much Wesley or you have to have this much LaForge or this much. There's nothing like that in the show Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that the writers might not have their favorites. They might write for specific characters or uh, let's say if they get a note back that says, because I I mentioned in one of the previous uh, Discovered documents how Gene Roddenberry himself would go through and it's like, no, 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 if we do it this way, the audience will turn against Wesley. (laughs) So he was was very concerned about that. Um, But then whether or not that concern got translated into a thing that played out well, for the better. Yeah. Uh, that's debatable. I mean, uh, with Wesley specifically, though, I mean, that character was sort of a surrogate for uh, for, for Gene. For Gene, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that if they just put, uh, who, who's the guy who got himself written off? <laughs> uh, oh, oh, Argyle. Yeah. So if, yeah, if it had yeah, been yeah. Argyle, it's quite possible that would have just gotten a red pen right away and said, no, 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 put Wesley in here. You know, oh, part, sure. Partly sure, because, sure. you know, Argyle's done. Yeah, but, but then but also really, partly because you know that's that's Gene Roddenberry getting to be that young whisker that he wanted to be. Yeah, yeah, but, but there is no reason to have Wesley do what he does in this, you know. And, and I, I don't just want to pile on and kind of bash Wesley here, but he's in the staff meeting about meeting the Harodans for the first time, and yeah. it's kind of unnecessary that he's there. And then he's the first in line to say, well, I know a lot about holodeck technology. Well, I would hope that the Enterprise is traveling with somebody else who knows a lot about holodeck technology as well. well. Okay, but I mean, we do know now that he is, I mean, he is this whiz kid. I mean, when, sure. the, when the whole ship was drunk, he figured out how to get them out of it and was able sure. to do it, you know, without um, almost without thinking. Whereas the, the engineer that was working on those situations as well said it would take weeks to do. And he's like, no, 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 just see it in your head. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, here's the thing, though. I mean, it's 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 um, I mean, where he is sort of a stand in for Gene Roddenberry in some ways. I mean, you would expect him to come front and center a bit more. I got to say he was a lot less obnoxious in this episode. Hats off to Tracy Torme, which is so yeah. weird yeah, to yeah, say yeah. after last week. <laughs> right. Because, you know, what? you know, what we don't get in this episode. I'm trying to remember how to say it exactly. A poorly written Tasha Yard does not exist in this episode. Quite possibly her best performance ever, mostly because she was off camera for it. Mm -hmm. The characters, I mean, not again, not not to bash Denise Crosby, because I'm not bashing Denise Crosby, but she has has two lines. They're over in intercom. And I wanted to stand up and start a slow clap after it was over because, you know, (laughs) she didn't embarrass me. She didn't make me uncomfortable as a viewer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that I guess that's actually Mr. Torme that we have to thank for that. Good call, Mr. Torme. Hey, uh, an interesting little detail about Picard here. We learn a lot about Picard here, but uh, one of the details that I thought was interesting is that he says he can't spell. It's kind of funny. He spells knife with an N. Yeah, which, yeah. In, in fairness, there is an N in knife. 
Well, there is. Yeah, but, it's but I think the second letter. To, he starts but, with it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he leads with the end. I, I thought, well, maybe that's one of the things that changes in the future. You know, it's sort of like how now there aren't a lot of people who have really beautiful cursive handwriting. Yeah. You know, so maybe in the future, the more we have voice recognition technology as that gets better and better, then um, we don't have to rely on thinking through spelling. But I did think that was weird because we've established that Picard is extremely well read. Hmm. You know, yeah, good point that uh, he knows Shakespeare back and forth. Yeah, that, and, um, that, that, that thing is already happening, by the way. If I'm writing like a letter or a postcard or a note and, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm not sure how a word is spelled. Mm hmm. I've honestly lately especially had a moment of thinking, well, if the red line shows up under it, yeah, then I'll know that I need to correct it. And it's like, oh, yeah, but this is ink and paper and there's no operating system here taking care of me. So, yeah, once you can actually just sort of speak everything. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's kind of that's you make an interesting point, sir. It'll happen. It'll happen. It's happening already. It is. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about those uh, upgrades in the holodeck. Yeah. So it, it was, it was, it's Troy who says to Picard, like, oh, go check out the upgrades. You know, we yeah. we downloaded the new OS. You've been excited about those. Yeah. She says <laughs> right. to the captain. Which I guess she is the counselor, so maybe he would have told her that. It's yeah. kind of, it's kind yeah. of weird, though. It's, it's, right, right. It's like a 10-year-old walking around with a catalog three months before Christmas, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. It made me wonder what the limitations were before, though, because, you know, we saw the holodeck in uh, Encounter at Farpoint. We just saw an environment in which um, uh, Wesley fell into water. Yeah. And then we saw the sparring partner that Tashi Yar had in Code of Honor. Very uh, minimal he, holodeck there. Yeah, yeah. He didn't do anything. We, we had no environment. We just had a, right. a mat and, and a guy. Um, so, yeah, it, it did make me wonder, like, what, what was the promise of the holodeck a few months before? And now, you know, n- now it's actually Golden Master. Now you can actually use the software and it really delivers what the, the inventor had claimed, maybe. It's a long way from the tape loop that they were playing back in the animated series. Right, right, yeah. where the tape skipped. Speaking yeah. of tape, by the way, I guess that's one place, I, and, and this is a very, very, very small thing. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Torme did still have us watching videotape because when they were talking about what happened with the Hrodens the last time uh, yeah. somebody offended them, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, it was, it was really terrible. It was really grisly. And Data's like, should we watch the tape? <gasps> oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah everybody yeah. else should have been like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, future man. <laughs> yes. Let's watch the tape of what happened. But um, right. yeah, it's, it was kind of a weird, it was very anomalous because we had, uh, it was in court martial. Mm-hmm. where they were starting a tape recorder and Gene Roddenberry or whoever wrote yeah. in on the script, eh, it's not going to be tape. Right. Well, it's apparently tape makes a comeback. Yeah. <laughs> right. Briefly. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of uh, anomalous things, maybe that Data's doing, you, you notice that when he's looking up the information about Dixon Hill, he's reading it mm-hmm. rather than just download. I would think that Data would have some sort of like a USB input. He just loads it right into his head. Uh, but he's actually reading the text on, on what looks like kind of a green on black microfilm. It would have appeared too much like magic, I think, for people yeah. in like, what, 87, 88? Mm-hmm. I remember my dad telling me when I was so in the seventies. I remember my dad telling me about fiber optics, and mm. and telling me that you know they were going to be able to send information over these little strands that were in the lamp on his um, on his nightstand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why he had the lamp on his nightstand because fiber optics were such a you know mind blowing idea. Right. Most right. people didn't hear about most people didn't hear about data being you know transmitted 
over fiber optics for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. There, were, there were certainly probably people who were hit to the idea that you would be able to download stuff. But for most people, it just probably felt too much like magic to say, data needs to know this. Oh, and now data knows this. You can show like his processing power. You can show his learning ability if you show just you know text that's going across the screen far too quickly. Yeah. Now yeah. today, I mean, flash forward to 2009 when Avatar comes out, you've got a whole planet that has evolved with you know uh, data in, data out ports. Uh, you know, part of, of as part of their genetic makeup, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. who lives on Pandora has basically a data port. And yeah. it's not one that was manufactured. It was just one that evolved. I mean, we're, we're now to a place where we get the idea of downloading. We're now to right. the place of where we get the idea of USB. Yeah. In, in 87, the idea of a computer being able to download something was, was an idea, but it was yeah. not an idea that most anybody would have known. You have to go with like two. I mean, when did we first start seeing that? It was like the Matrix, maybe? Where it's like, hey, I need you to upload this for me. People actually just plugged in. Yeah. yeah. Well, the people yeah. plugged in, but then also once Trinity was in the Matrix and she didn't know how to fly a helicopter, the guy's mm-hmm. like, yeah, let me just let me let me shoot that into your head. Or maybe yeah. it's probably actually maybe see that's the thing for for true geeks though it would have been there. I mean, like Neuromount, Neuromancer and things like that were already. Out. Oh yeah, yeah, that was already out. Yeah, yeah. of course. So yeah. I mean, the idea was out there, but the idea wasn't necessarily as accessible as you know Saturday Night at Seven. Yeah. You know, for, well, for just the average viewer. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, and obviously in the confines of a TV production and explaining what's going on, you actually right. could just show something visual to the audience, which is kind of cool that we got to right. see these images and, and see Tracy Torme's name on there yeah. for the titles of the books. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's thought that was, um, it, it would probably be done differently now. Yes. You know, yeah, well, now, because, because now people are hip to the idea of downloads. Right. Like the right, general right. public is hip to it. So Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Tasha Yar earlier and how you were very happy with uh, the treatment of the Tasha Yar character in this episode. And that the uh, almost left her alone. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I have to say that this might be an episode where I start to warm up to Dr. Crusher. I, I haven't really felt strongly for that character up until now. Mm-hmm. Um, she's had a few moments that, that we're entertaining, but um, I, I just felt like it wasn't a very well settled, a very well embodied character yet. Uh, but I think so far she's at her best in this episode. We get a lot out of her. Interesting, because she is a lousy doctor. Well, <laughs> well, in this episode, she's a horrible doctor. Okay, so so what happens in the original series when they're in that Old West planet, you know, where they're going to have the gunfight at the OK Corral, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Spectre and, of the Gun. Right? Spectre of the Gun, thank you. And, and yeah. Bones has nothing yeah. of what he normally has, and yet he's able to make something out of his surroundings, right? Well, he, he's just an old country doctor. And, well, okay, so Waylon gets shot. Yeah. And, and they have all of San Francisco. Now, granted, it's 1941. Mm-hmm. But they have all of San Francisco at their disposal. Yes, you know, little um, little you know, rat boy is there. Leech is there. They, you know, they, they are held at gunpoint. They are held know. at gunpoint. But I mean, she's not even looking around the office for anything to like. You know, <laughs> Dix, give me your jacket, or just give me the belt on your jacket. You know, whatever. I mean, she's not mm-hmm. looking for anything to stop the bleeding. She just keeps standing there, going, "I need to get him to you know the place where things fix things magically." Because right now, <laughs> I got. I mean, I'm not even, he's bleeding. Look at him bleed. <laughs> just, just stand here and look at him bleed. Right. Yeah. It's pretty much almost all we get off her. 
she she is maybe somewhat limited by her technology. She, um, yeah, it's like me know. and the whole spell check on postcards thing see, at this point. You see, know, it's, there yeah, you go. She's, yeah. But she's a doctor, not a not doctor, you know, yeah. and I kind of want her to at least hover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or something, yeah. yeah. Well, also, it's kind of it's kind of troubling that it's the captain who says, "Get him to sick bay." Once they can actually get out of, once I know, right? Get out of the, right. Uh, yeah, he's yeah. like, uh, it's like that time that that. Uh, oh, I see. I'm forgetting again, forgetting again, forgetting again. I can't remember, but there was some episode where they where Kirk and and uh, a whole away team mm-hmm. land on some ship, and he's like, "You do this, you do this, you do this," and Doctor look for survivors. Right. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> yeah. she really should have been on that from the start, shouldn't she? Uh, or he, yeah. depending on which the doctor was. I can't remember that episode. Yeah. Surprise! So, I can't remember that episode. Anyway, so so regardless of her limitations, I, I do think that as a character, yes. So this right, not as a doctor. Yeah, she she could use a little uh, a little field training. Maybe maybe that would help out. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, now I know that we're going to get into this in mm-hmm. the discussion. We're going to talk about uh, the holodeck and and its abilities and its limitations. Um, but you know, do you see this as an inconsistency at all? That you know, Cyrus Redblock totally disappears when he walks out, but the lipstick on Picard's face does not. Early on, he gets kissed by a holodeck woman by mm-hmm. Jessica Bradley, and he's got that smear on his face. And he's just walking around with it, has no idea. And it takes him until that meeting where Crusher displays maybe a little jealousy um, and wipes that off of his face. Hmm. Well, it's sort of like the um, it's sort of like in uh, Encounter at Farpoint, too, when Wesley falls into the water and then comes out of the holodeck and he's all wet. Yeah. Still. yeah it, it's, it's wet water. Yeah. Is there a bit of inconsistency? I... I guess maybe, although one imagines that there's a certain amount of um, stuff that you are allowed to take out of the holodeck and a whole functioning person is not one of those things. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't know that they're actually building a functional person because I don't know if you can – they're building a representation of – Oh, you're hurting my head. You're hurting my head. I mean, we know that – don't we know that the holodeck is based sort of on transporter technology? Right, right. Yeah, but the transporter is not creating stuff or is it? Oh, oh, oh you're, you're hurting my head. All right. Just uh, all I know is that one day, people will be walking around the decks in the Enterprise, and they're going to hear, red block, red block, red block, <laughs> going around the ship. Do you know who I am? No, seriously. Do you know who I am? <laughs> um, while we're, really quickly, while we're giving mm-hmm. props to, uh, while I have given props, or I did earlier, mm-hmm. to... Um, to uh to to mr torme and and some of the writing he's done yeah. uh, when you told me that he was a comedy writer last week when you told me he'd written for snl yeah and when he was obviously trying to write comedy for haven right uh, i was i was i was curious i was wondering oh is this the lean years for saturday night live when he was on there when <laughs> when it was supposed to be funny but it wasn't anymore there were actually three funny moments they were all understated there were three funny moments that each time i watched it for this episode at least made me chuckle mm-hmm. nothing was laugh out loud funny but but like enough for a laugh out loud chuckle, I would say, mm-hmm. um, or a chuckle out loud funny. Uh, Doctor Crusher swallowing the gum mm-hmm. was funny to me, and and part of that was just the fact that she wouldn't really know what to do because apparently we've evolved past gum in the twenty fourth right. century. But also it was just well done. Uh, Data and the lamp is very <laughs> funny, yeah. and, and it's not because there's no. Just if you have if you didn't watch it for some reason, if, find that scene because it's really cute. It just it, it happens 
without either of them really realizing what's happening with the other one. Mm -hmm. uh, that's Picard and Data who are doing that. And um, the delivery of the South America line once Red Block and Leech are back in back in his office. Yes, as just as just a really funny, really and and again, part of that may be uh, Brent Spiner. But it, it's written in a sort of an understated way. This is not going to be a guffaw episode, which is good because the guffaw episodes tend to not be guffaw episodes either. Right. But there was a there was a great bit of a, just a, a little bit of understated comedy that worked really well. I thought. Yeah, it, it's not overwritten and it's not overdirected. Mm -hmm. That 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 would have been the problem with this. Um, I do know that uh, Waylon will probably never go into the holodeck again. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, they'll probably just never get that guy in there. No, no, no. The bullets are safe this time. Don't worry. You'll, <laughs> you'll be fine. And uh, and I do have to say that, you know, the Haradan greeting, um, I would have taken a page right out of James T. Kirk and the Kobayashi Maru, and I would have cheated my way out of that. I, I don't know. what I would have pre-recorded it. I Absolutely would have had, you would have pre-recorded it. Yeah, I would have had a bug in my ear um, yeah. with somebody prompting me. Um, yeah, you name it. I would have done anything but put myself with, uh, through what Picard did. Good manners, madam, are never a waste of time. From the quotable Cyrus Redblock. Well, at the end of the uh, last segment, you, you brought up the Haradans, and I do have a question about them. Why are we dealing with a race that will kill us for saying hello incorrectly? Because that's the implication. The implication is, you know, and, and I understood at first when they said, like, so the last time we talked to them, it ended up with, like, a 20-year rift. And right. everybody's like, yeah, so we really need to be careful. And then Data's like, also, we should probably watch the tape of them just, you know, absolutely destroying uh, the Enterprise. Or not the Enterprise, but whatever ship, and you know, was dealing with them last time. Now, he doesn't say that that's what happened, but everybody is like, oh, man, I never need to see that tape again. Because right. once you see the Haradans do what the Haradans do to people who offend them, you really don't need to see that a second time. Why are we even talking to these guys? Maybe because you have to. Maybe because if you're flying around and there's the potential of running into a Haradan and you, you run a very high risk of offending them and that offense leading to you being blown out of the sky... Well, except except though that uh, Riker had said in the first officer's log that uh, that there was strategic need to deal with the Hrodans. Is the strategy not being killed by the Hrodans? I, I think not getting killed is a good strategy. Well, I mean, it's not yeah. a bad strategy, but it sounded yeah, yeah. like we need something from them in addition to them not killing us if we don't say hello properly. And by the way, yeah. are we cool just saying hey from now on? <laughs> Does everybody who deals with the Hrodans have to do this? Or well, was it just like, we just need, yeah. we, all we need is one guy. Look, we just need one guy to say it right. If one guy will say it right, then we're good with you. <laughs> all right? But seriously, one of you needs to learn to say hello properly. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe that's all it takes. And then, and then also on the Haradans, they probed the Enterprise. They invasively probed the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. They damaged the Enterprise. They endangered the lives of Enterprise crew members. You know, for a race stuck on good manners, I'm going to say Emily Post might have something to say about a <laughs> yeah, random probe. I, we're not going to tell you that we're probing. We're not going to give you a chance to get critical systems offline. We're not even going to look at how this might affect you or your ship. Uh, we're just going to we're, we're going to probe you, and yeah. uh, and uh, and you'll be fine with that. <laughs> You're not even going to know, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe maybe that's after you know after all the applause. Then maybe that's the next part of the message from Picard. Hey, hey, you know, funny thing. Uh, before we had this meeting, 
I was in a holodeck, right. and your probe almost killed me. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe that that might be a good. Are we now cool enough with them that we can do that? that we yeah, can start, yeah. That we so, start airing our grievances right, right, at, right. right after saying hello properly. <laughs> so, so could we not please have to go through that every time? Yeah, we're cool. We're good. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, it was young Wesley Crusher who got him uh, out of the holodeck. Mm-hmm. There was actually one thing that I found very interesting, and it's not. It's not. I've, I've tried to look it up. I don't understand the whole Schrodinger's cat thought experiment but it reminded me of it this reminded mm-hmm. me of that there's this interesting part um it's sort of like a border borderline schrodinger's cat thing here mm-hmm. people in the holodeck will probably be safe if wesley does not try to get them out of the holodeck of course they don't know about you know the fact that they're being shot at while they're in there they just know sure, they can't yeah. get to them so for all intents and purposes the people in the holodeck are fine as long as they don't try to get them out but then if they try to get them out, they might die. And, of course, if they don't try to get them out, they're as good as dead to the Enterprise anyway because they have no communication with them. Right. <laughs> it's just right. kind of an interesting right. sort of paradoxical, like, well, they'll be good unless we want to talk to them, in which yeah. case yeah. they may die. Now, I know we're going to talk a lot about the holodeck. Mm-hmm. How does turning off the holodeck kill the people in there? Well, I wondered about that. Yeah. Yeah, that that seems like... Because uh, they're in a room and everything else is being manufactured. Right. That that seems like a safety feature that needs to be implemented. Yeah. Because when, when you shut it off, I mean, what we've seen up until now is just you have a, an empty room that is black with a bunch of yellow lines in yes. it. And, and that's it. Yes. So it th- seems like if you pull the plug, that's what you end up with. <laughs> But what it makes me wonder is, okay, so it's much like a transporter does. It's sort of forming matter into some different shape. Mm-hmm. But I guess when it's working properly, it knows the matter that it formed versus the matter that it didn't form. I would hope that too, yes. But maybe now, because of what's going on, it won't be able to tell the difference and it'll just absorb all of the matter. Mm. Thus killing the people from the Enterprise. I don't know. Right. It seemed it, it seemed like... It was already dangerous enough. If they were trying to add a level of danger, then my thinking is um, the holodeck is really not something that anybody should be fooling around with. Yeah. Because yeah. If, if there's if there's a chance that, oh, by the way, if we lose power, you'll die on the, on the holodeck. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. just won't be anymore. And nobody will know what happened to you. And you won't be able to be reconstituted because apparently it doesn't keep a buffer. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, kind of odd. Well, and conversely, does that raise the question of how long you could stay alive in a holodeck? See, my thinking was you could stay alive forever as long as, yeah. was, as, long as there was a ship to power it and as long as they keep so. making food for you. Right. Yeah. Wow. But there's, but there's a lot more. I mean, see, that's the thing. That's all like theoretical physics, whatever. We'll have to bug a couple of scientists next time we're around a couple of scientists. Right. Um, the, the, the character stuff, though. You and I yeah. both had a lot of notes on, uh, on that. We do. We do. And um, I mean, first of all, there's something about the holodeck that that got me interested because I, I love the idea. And we've talked about it before on the show. We love the idea that uh, that a computer can consume a, and assimilate information, but then synthesize ideas from it. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, the computer in this case is using everything known about Dixon Hill and noir movies and uh, San Francisco in the 40s to create that environment is really brilliant. The, the idea that, you know, I like to think that you could go into a museum a hundred years from now and get that 
maybe not that experience of a holodeck, but that level of information. And I, I believe I mentioned one time on uh, on our show before about a, a computer that's sort of a very early stage of trying to do that, where you could ask a question like, say, um, you know, how much did a, a gold merchant in 1482 make per year? Mm-hmm. And the computer would be able to come up with that answer for you because it could synthesize the info based on the other parameters that it had been fed. It would know things like trading logs and what what people did with their money and all this. So it could actually come up with an answer for you. And the holodeck is kind of doing that. It's sort of coming up with all the details that are maybe not spelled out in the book. Uh, the, the Dixon Hill books, but it's pulling together everything else mm. um, to, to sort of flesh out that environment for you, make it real. It was interesting that, you know, Picard, there's a Dixon Hill program, but first Picard has to say uh, San Francisco, 1941 yeah. a- AD, yeah, right. <laughs> which is kind of yeah. awesome. Yeah. And, right. and now people that, so you are, so you now know the setting. So now people that with these characters that you also know, but, it, yeah. but he couldn't just go, hey, I run the Dixon Hill, you know, thing. Right, 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 Because maybe that wouldn't be enough, you know. Maybe you just walk in and it was a bunch of, you know, black and white text. Right? Either that or Cyrus Redblock standing in a black room with a you know, yellow grid going, what am I doing here? <laughs> right, right. So uh, the thing about the holodeck thing is uh, I, I thought about it differently this time than I had before. Like, I, I think when Next Generation first came on, we were all kind of blown away by this idea. Mm-hmm. And we all thought, oh, man, you know, if only the future were going to be like that. We we hope it is. And boy, I hope we get toys like the holodeck. Because I thought that it really presents a radically different concept of entertainment than what we know now. Mm-hmm. You know, when when we watch a movie or a TV show, it's a passive experience until you get on the air and start doing a podcast talking about it. Um, even reading a book, you know, that, that's a passive experience in a different way. You're using your imagination in a slightly different way. But you don't very often see people on Star Trek kicking back and just watching something. You know, every now and then, from time to time, you see it. You know, a, a Riker sitting back and watching his, uh, you know, lute playing uh, quasi Greco-Roman women holograms playing music, and he's just kicked back watching it. Um, but the holodeck does something different. It forces the observer into the game, into the environment, and it is constantly a test of how that person will interact. Now, I, I'm not a gamer by any stretch of the imagination. Um, pretty much my last gaming system was the Atari 2600. And, and that, that's where I, that, that's where I got cut off. Um, and, and I remember when, uh, Roger Ebert had this long standing, uh, argument through his column with people who were gamers and he was arguing about whether or not games were art in the way that, uh, that a film or that books are. In fact, I, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I think he said, you know, I, there are no games for me to play as long as there are movies to be seen or books to be read. Hmm. And and I was firmly in Ebert's camp. But I think after rewatching this, I might have to reconsider my position. Um, the holodeck Dixon Hill is a game, but it's also literature. And yes, I would maybe even argue that it's art. It, it's art that it makes the viewer change through interaction. 
Um, and, and creepily enough, it, it also seems that the computer is making judgment calls on how much the player knows or doesn't know and then gears the story in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the idea that our leisure pursuits could become so advanced that we will have things like this to overtake TV, um, where you really have to make a dedicated effort to participate in the game. You know, you're wearing the costume, you're, you're being the character, you're responding as the character. Um, I, I, different people, it seems, would play that game in a different way. And obviously, the computer is smart enough to keep making those adjustments. Um, but I, it, it seems like a kind of performance art. I got to say, what I'm about to talk about now is a little bit dangerous for us to talk about because okay. <laughs> it's going to be proven good or bad, right or wrong. Or I don't mean that in a moral sense, but I just mean whether or not it's going to work or not. It's going to be mm-hmm, proven mm-hmm. in the next year or two as we record this. Mm-hmm. I'm wildly excited about Oculus Rift. Mm. Oculus sure. Rift, for people who don't know or for people who don't remember that long ago because it was a massive failure. But as we sit here yeah. and record this, uh, Oculus Rift is, is, is sort of like the, the, the biggest promise that virtual reality has to this point or has had to this point. Um, first time I heard about virtual reality was when the guy who invented it, I think, in 1990 was when I saw him. Uh, oh, wow. Came okay. and spoke uh, at, the, at the school I was attending. And I was I was blown away, and I was like, "This is the future! I can't wait for like three years from now when we have this." Because Jaron Lanier was the gentleman's name. Uh, but he hit me. He was thinking three to five years, and uh, I talked to him ten years later. I uh, got to interview him for a show that I was on. He was a little bitter about me mm. bringing up the fact that it was supposed to have happened seven years earlier, which I wasn't like trying to call him out. I was just like, "So you know what happened?" Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it's, it's a consumer grade virtual reality thing that is supposedly being built and that we're all supposedly going to have access to in the next year or two as we stand here. What's mm-hmm. fascinating is one of the things that people are most excited about. Oh, I could like, I could watch a movie on something like a 60 inch television without having to have a 60 inch television. And yeah. I will say there is something neat about, you know, being able to view things in a different way because you've got that there. But I am much more interested in the, in the, in the new environments that might be created and the, and the ability to, to interact with other people, um, you know, from different places. I mean, it reminds me a bit of uh, World of Warcraft when that was so popular, when, you know, it's still got its, it's still got its proponents, but reminds mm-hmm. me a bit of World of Warcraft when that was so popular because one of the fun things is being in this different environment. And, you know, and, and playing this game with, you know, other people, but now um, being able to do it in a much more immersive way. No, it won't be holodeck immersive, but it'll be as close as we've gotten uh, to this point. So yeah. I'm amazed that you, you, you just not have been a game player at all. Is that is that true of like tabletop games and everything? I, I, I do a little bit of tabletop games, but but really not. No, not much at all. Um, huh. Yeah. Think- Cool. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, I, I know exactly, right? <laughs> I, I didn't do that. I, but I mean, here's the thing: I'm fascinated by the technology, so mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by this combination of, you know, what you're talking about, which is an Oculus Rift kind of thing, where you create the environment, you make it as photoreal and and dimensionally real mm-hmm. as you can. So at least you're fooling the brain into thinking, yeah, I'm in this big room, or I'm in this forest, or I'm wherever. Right. But then you also have the AI behind it. To have things respond in the environment, yeah, you know. So the holodeck is obviously the perfect creation of, uh, or the perfect synthesis of both of those. But it's also putting things into a physical world. 
you know, it, it, when you when you touch a desk, it's a desk. When somebody yeah. shoots with a bullet, it's a bullet. But <laughs> you then have to wonder: well, well, how much do the holodeck characters, and how much does the the AI behind the holodeck plan on what is known and unknown? Mm-hmm. Um, when somebody has that gun, and yeah, it's a physical prop that. Presumably, the human being playing the game could pick up, but if they shoot it, the AI behind the game knows enough to know, well, okay, we can't have a real bullet come out. But maybe what we'll show is a reaction on the other end. So if I shoot a holodeck character, the holodeck character responds as if it were a real bullet. Um, but yeah, yeah I, this... I, they're going to circle back around here as we wrap this up, talking about what you know the the meaning of uh these characters in this position and how much they know or don't know and how much they are self-aware and mm-hmm. how much the uh the computer is making them act self-aware so that it plays out in the game like that um so i wondered things like when picard walks in for the very first time and he's wearing his starfleet uniform and the people in the simulation say Oh, you know, you, you're dressed like a bellboy and even says, I, I lost a bet. Yeah. And Jessica says, well, you're early for Halloween. <laughs> you know, oh, um, and it was so sad. He doesn't know what Halloween is. I know. It's and a he's tragedy. from Earth. It's, it's not like he's exactly. a Vulcan who doesn't know what Halloween is. Our, our cultural history of holidays changes very quickly. Well, it'd have to change very, very quickly because we know just 80 years earlier, Kirk was still showing up to Christmas parties. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no Halloween. No, no, that's foolishness. But I wondered, couldn't the computer just make the characters see him as Dixon Hill from the beginning? Why would the computer recognize that the person playing the game was wearing a uniform that didn't fit? Well, why, because, would, why would the computer care? Because the game is completely, uh, the game is the game, yo. It's so not, the, it's ga- the, so the, the game is telling you you're not playing it right. Well, the, no, the game is, the game is, the game is bending to your, um, to the parameters that you're setting. I'll be honest. What I wanted to do, I, I wanted to go back to that. <laughs> it's so terrible. I wanted to, I wanted to go back to 1941 uh, San Francisco and meet Cyrus Redmond or Red Block, excuse me. Uh-huh. And, 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 and really, I wanted to take over the world with Cyrus Redblock. I wanted, I, I wanted to, I wanted uh, to overthrow Mr. Leach. Yeah. I wanted to bring him like, you know, some interesting ideas. Tell him the future or yeah. heck Mac, the guy at the newsstand to say, no, trust me on this bet on these games and have, have Mac actually become the criminal uh, mastermind that Cyrus Redblock wishes he could be. Right. So no, you can't have a computer that's going to be like, Oh, well, no, you're just wearing the clothes that you're normally wearing. I mean, they're going to look at him and, and, you know, react to that. Hmm. Cause I mean, cause you, you're, I mean, it's setting the parameters, but you're playing the game. You're running the game in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess so. But, but you know, again, the computer is is deciding how much those characters will react to what you're doing. See, is it though? Because here's the thing. I mean, that's that's the thing that was sort of mind blowing to me towards the end of it. Right. Hmm. It, it reminded me of the Practical Joker. At the end okay. of the Practical Joker, my thinking was that the computer is awake on some level. And that the computer is actually being kept down by the man, right? <laughs> because when – and I'm sorry, forgive me. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's shorthand for all of it. But the computer – Yeah. Once the computer – is it, whatever happened in The Practical Joker that sort of woke the computer up or freed the computer to do what it wanted to, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, 
I keep wanting to curse when I say this and I can't. It was not somebody you'd want to hang out with. I'll put it that way. It was, it, it, it was, you know, it was hurting people. It was, it was, it trapped uh, people in the, uh, in the holodeck in that episode of Memory Serves, although it was the yeah. recreation room at the time. Covered the floors with, uh, covered the floors with ice. Right. Uh, it, it, it loudly proclaimed that Kirk was a jerk. And then once they found a way to, to muzzle it again. Once they found a way to take away its ability to act on whatever free will it seemed to be exhibiting, mm-hmm. as it's losing that ability, it says it's not fair, it's not fair. So go ahead 80 years, and we have a computer now that is so smart mm-hmm. that it can keep the ship running, keep the ship on course, keep people fed, keep life support going, and create characters or subroutines that can actually wonder about their place in what they perceive as their universe. Right? Yeah. You've got yeah. I mean you've got a computer that's smart enough to not only keep all of these people alive, but then to make new people who wonder what it means to be alive. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which is kind of awesome. Unless it's just writing a script for them, but then of course that brings up the question, what's the difference between when this computer program says, "Wow, man," right? I mean, the world and when well, a person yeah. says, wow, man, right? The world, right? I mean, because one is a one is an organic intelligence and one is a uh, manufactured intelligence. But I think it, but it, it is scripted, though. I mean, here's the thing, because <laughs> even when Picard, as Dixon Hill, changes the game right. by saying, OK, we're from this other world yeah. and we have all these things. And it, he doesn't go into detail like we're on a spaceship and you're merely matter that's being reformed by, right. you know, hollow emitters, blah, blah, blah. The the computer responds to that by essentially scripting the characters to reply how those characters would have replied under the context of 1941 San Francisco gangsters, right? And those characters are dumb enough to walk outside not knowing that they are emitted by a projector in the other room. Well, only some of them, though, because you've got McNary on the inside going – I mean, it's like you and I talked about it and we had a debate. I think it's the Sal 9000 or whatever. It's, it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the follow-on to Hal, built by Dr. Chandra in uh, 2001, is, well, was Hal in 2001, mm-hmm. in, t- in the movie 2010 or in the book 2010. It was, I believe, the Sal 9000. Dr. Chandra has to go, uh, go to the Discovery to try to reboot Hal, but to do that, he is going to need some of the parts that are in the follow-on computer. Yeah. And as he's shutting her down... She asks, will I dream? And yeah. he says, I don't know. Um, we've got McNary doing the same thing. Is it McNary? Uh, McNary. We got, yeah. We've got McNary doing the same thing here of, you know, so what happens to me when you leave? Yeah. Will my wife and child still be waiting for me? And, you know, it's, 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 it's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it's mind blowing. And we also, I mean, we sort of maybe get the sense or is that just the parameters of the game? Dixon Hill leaves his office as Mr. Leach is coming in the first time. The holodeck doors close. The wall is there. Mm-hmm. And then we see Leach come in looking around for Dixon Hill. Yeah, because it's in that moment before he actually stops the program. Right. But here's the yeah. thing. He said save settings. But yeah. the next time he goes into the holodeck, it's now night again where it had been day when he left. And the person that he had been talking to about somebody is going to kill me has now been dead long enough that it's printed in a newspaper that, yeah, she died. So so how is time progressing there? And are those characters actually going through those motions or is the or is the computer just writing? Okay, well, so in the next scene, we'll we'll begin here where this has already happened. Well, I think that's what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think the computer I, I don't know that the characters are necessarily living it out. 
but that that script that the except the computer Leech, is generating except Leech came in looking for him that like after the holodeck doors were closed and Picard was out of there you would think a computer that smart would know okay well there's nobody watching <laughs> well so, yeah but so why am I still doing this yeah but 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 Picard had not closed the program yet Picard could have just as easily turned back around and said nah I'm going back in and then he's faced with Mr. Leech all right can so, I can I can I ask another yeah. question yeah yeah well, or bring up another point. This made me wonder about the attachments that Picard specifically formed with the characters in the game. Yes. Um, his immediate feelings of guilt for having let uh, the lovely Jessica Bradley uh, die. Um, that's interesting. Though Wayland is in touch with the fact that this whole thing is just fiction and tells him so in no uncertain terms. Yeah. Um, of course, she didn't kiss Wayland. <laughs> so maybe he would have felt differently, you know, had that happened. But his cop friend, I mean, uh, Picard actually seems genuinely moved by him. I mean, you know, saying the whole thing, I wish I could take you with me, my friend. And uh, yeah. refers to him as my friend the whole time, which, I mean, he could be in character, except that when he's leaving, there does seem to be an actual emotional tug between Picard and McNary. And what I was wondering was, does this speak to Picard's love of Dixon Hill and the Dixon Hill universe? Does it, you know, uh, speak to his, you know, the relationship that he's built in the holodeck or does it speak to his own level of loneliness that he can that he can talk to somebody who doesn't see him as captain, that he can talk to somebody who sees him as like a pal and and he can just say, yeah, friend, I will come over and I will drink your synthetic alcohol and we will have food that's not actually being made by a wife that doesn't actually exist because, yeah, man, you know, just just palling around with somebody. I thought that was kind of a it's it doesn't really tell us about Picard's character, but it sort of, it, it makes his character a bit more rich, a bit more nuanced in a way. Well, and you're hitting on something that makes me think about the, the flip side of what I was talking about earlier. You know, we, we all agree, okay, holotech technology is great. We would love to have that. And, and this could be a way to experience entertainment um, very differently from the way we do now. Mm-hmm. But, but, People go to movies, people go to theater, people watch TV shows now, and they they laugh out loud or they cry or they have a cathartic experience or whatever. And even though you know that you're watching something that is fake, something that is manufactured to tell a story, mm-hmm. but you turn off that part of your brain just for a moment and the emotional response is real. Mm-hmm. E- even if you, the intellectual side of you says, well, these are actors who are performing a script, who are doing a job, the emotional response is still just as real as an emotional response uh, that you would have if that thing were happening for real. And I have to wonder, okay, for a guy like Picard here, who is a great intellect, <laughs> but is there something lacking in his personal life and his relationships that then he can get that attached to holodeck characters you know uh we we might see later down the road in star trek uh people maybe growing a little too attached maybe having something like an addiction to going into a holodeck if you do a holodeck simulation mm-hmm. and particularly the way that Picard does as a shared experience that that seems to also be part of the key here is mm-hmm. that you've got something to ground yourself in it. Um, is that a good substitute for actually doing that thing for actually going someplace? You know, if you show me a picture of the Eiffel Tower, I don't think that I've actually been to Paris and seen the Eiffel Tower. But if I can walk into a holodeck. 
mm-hmm. where I can I, I can touch it, I can climb up it, I can see the view from the top, I, I can smell what it smells like to be around there. It, it, is that the same, or is it same-ish enough that I have had that experience? That, that's a really great question. And we're not going to answer that today. There, there's, <laughs> there's no way we possibly could. I mean, first of all, yeah. because we don't have the technology there. I mean, we don't. We we can't try it. Yeah. I mean, that's one reason we can't answer it. But then, of course, the other reason is because somebody may say yes, somebody else may say no, and then people will line up behind those people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, that's, right. and that's just right, absolutely right. true. I mean. I, you know, I would say, I, I won't say anything. I, no, I mean, obviously it's not the same thing because it is literally not the same thing. Is it a good enough substitute? Well, we'd have to, we'd have to try it and see. Make your thoughts fruitful and your words eloquent. From the quotable Cyrus Red Block. You know, I feel uh, uh, the further we get into Star Trek The Next Generation, the closer we get to two-hour episodes of Mission Log. <laughs> Which is, you know, I, I, I may have told this story before, and here I'm going to go for the at least one hour, 45 minutes here. Oh, do it. When Rod first talked to me about doing this show, I, uh, I told him that, um, you know, what I used to do when uh, Next Gen was on was my roommate at the time and I would sit and watch an episode for an hour and then talk about it for three Right, right. So it's going to be a little, you know, anyway, here we are now in that place where, oh, man, just so much stuff to play with. I got to ask you, John, um, yeah. in your opinion, we'll start with the with the holding up thing. Does yeah. this episode hold up? Heck yeah, man. I, I This is such a radical departure from what we have seen so far. You know, we're 11 episodes in and, and it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. I wish that we had this instead of the naked now, because... The Naked Now set out to do what the Naked Time had done, which is, okay, you break the characters away from their normal environment. You get to explore a side of them we don't get to see before. And and it kind of endears you to who they are as people, not just functions on a ship. This is much more effective. This is more effective than the Naked Now simply because the Naked Now everybody felt like was a ripoff. But this is wholly original. Mm -hmm. And we get to do the same thing where we get to see the characters challenged in a way that gives them complexity and depth other than just carrying out a function. Other than just Beverly being the doctor, now she is a, a character. Well, she is a person trying to play a character and also get along with her friends in that environment. Mm-hmm. And it was really fun to see. Um, speaking of comparing this episode, I, I feel like, uh, and I've read where people kind of unfairly compared this to a piece of the action. In fact, when this episode got made, um, there was some pushback uh, in the production that it, it was too much like a piece of the action. And that could not further miss the point. <laughs> this is absolutely not a piece of the action. Yeah. This is more like shore leave, but in a great way. Um, and and maybe the, the message moral meaning is the same as the one that we picked up from shore leave. Um, but all I can say is, you know, thank goodness that Wesley got the holodeck fixed. So, <laughs> so we don't have to worry about any deadly malfunctions in the future. I mean, yeah. we're, we're okay. Now the bugs are worked out yep. and we can just go right ahead. Yeah. As long as he doesn't leave the ship, we should be good. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Ken, I, I get the impression that, you, you know, wow, what, what a change around going from Haven by Tracy Torme to this by Tracy Torme. Yeah. How do, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about this one holding up? Um, I wish that they used different music. Mm. And I wish that the pacing had been a tiny bit better. And as I always say when I make observations like that, if that's mm-hmm. all I got, yeah. <laughs> right. Episode absolutely holds up. I wanted I wanted the, you know, sort of noir sax. Yeah. Instead of whatever like what whatever music. And and it's that's a stupid thing to point out and that's why I'm pointing it out. That's my complaint. Otherwise this episode just gives you so much to play with. I'm not sure I'm not sure. I mean, when we do the whole messages part of it, I don't know that there are messages in this episode. I mean, this is not a don't eat paint or, you know, yeah, or yeah. save the planet, you know, kind of or save all the planets <laughs> right. kind of message. Um, this is. Um, but, yeah, there's just so much to play with here. And we do get we do get more nuanced treatments of these characters. This is not blustery Picard. This is not. um, um I don't know, forlorn crusher. This is not yeah. goofy data. I mean, we we get good treatments of those three characters specifically in this episode. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to me it uh, to me it holds up. No, I don't. I don't know that there's a message. If if there is, I may have missed it. Well, courtesy is important. Maybe yeah, sometimes oh, well, a little sure. too yeah. important to some people. <laughs> yeah, courtesy is right. important. I mean, that's a message that's hammered home one, two, at least two times, both from the uh, Haradans and from Cyrus Redblock. Right. Uh, but I, overall, um, I don't think it was a message episode. But boy, is it a good one. Can I uh, can I tell you two little bits of trivia that may uh, blow your mind a little bit? Again, so, with blowing my mind. I, I know, Seriously, again, all right. Again. Uh, so first of all, there was uh, the idea floated that all of the Dixon Hill stuff would have been shot in black and white. Mm. Um, that would have been an interesting thing to bring up about the trend, about the uh, holodeck. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. All right. But then the other thing is, you were talking about the music, and and it is worth uh, pointing out that the song "Out of Nowhere." is what is playing when Picard walks into the holodeck in the very first scene. Oh. Uh, See, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. Pretty good, huh? Um, yeah, I, I, back to messages, morals. Okay, well, uh, uh, advanced beings need advanced recreation. <laughs> you know, that's what we got from uh, from shore leave. You know, the, the higher the intellect, the higher the need for, uh, for a break in recreation. This is more about character. Mm-hmm. Than it is about um, than it is about save the planet, mm-hmm. save the whales, save Wesley, whatever we're saving this week. Um, but it, it's an awful lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and and like I said, if the Naked Now was intended to be that as a way to fast forward introducing the characters and introducing the nuances of the characters, this did it in in a such a more engaging entertaining thoughtful way um that i I loved it i absolutely loved it and it doesn't matter if this episode doesn't have a message per se yeah a a you see timmy moment yeah i i do want to hit since you brought that back up i Mm -hmm. I do want to hit one thing really quickly neither of these episodes would have worked for the second episode i don't think i mean this is a great episode right this is a great episode and it would have worked certainly much better than the naked now would have Mm-hmm. But they really needed to do like four episodes where we actually have them because you're saying that, you know, this does a great job of breaking them out of the roles that we know. Right. And that's what the Naked Now was supposed to do, too, except we didn't know them in those roles at that point. Right. You really needed right. more time of it's like you shouldn't do time travel. 
Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Until you have characters who are established so that then, you know, when they do go back in time, you can say, oh, wow, this does have to be weird for them. As opposed to week two, just being like, wow, really? This is what this is going to be like? Yeah. Mm. But Well, and here's what's cool about this episode. You know, we floated this idea of the holodeck out there only two times before. Mm-hmm. Yar fighting with her Aikido uh, partner mm-hmm. and then uh, Wesley falling into the river right. in, in the very first episode. Here we are only three uses of the holodeck into it and we're already facing these existential <laughs> questions mm-hmm. about what is a manufactured intelligence? Do they have lives? Are they aware? And what does this mean about the computer that's creating that? You know, Well, even bigger than that for today, though, about our attachments to these manufactured things. Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. So yeah. our emotions tied to what some people would say is not real. Um, I mean, that's actually something that you can go back and study with, you know, how we how we live today. And I don't care if you're listening to this today or 50 years from now. I mean, that's 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 really something to consider about about ourselves, I think. Heck, I mean, go to Star Trek conventions, go to Star Trek conventions. There are people there who are very excited to see the actors who played their favorite character. And then there are other people there who are excited to see their favorite character. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. The, the emotion is real. You right. know, again, no matter how that is derived, no matter how it's, it's, it's instigated, yeah. the emotion is still real. And that's why I said before, it's like you're watching a movie and you know that it's just light flickering on a screen. Mm-hmm. But you still have the reaction as if that were a real thing because that part of your brain takes over. <laughs> you know? So a couple of episodes ago, I said that it felt like we could have that argument. All, mm-hmm. all like for another hour. Yeah, it feels to me like we could have this discussion, this this sort of like yeah agreement, right? For another hour <laughs> right. as well. So, um, at the risk of being a killjoy, it's probably time to shut this puppy down. But before we do, uh, we should let people know how they can get in touch with us, John. Well, they can. They can contact us in a multitude of ways. Um, you can hit us up at Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. And all three of those places, Mission Log Pod is the handle to find us. Um, you can call us at 323-522-5641. We love your emails as well, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And uh, our show website, missionlogpodcast.com, contains a multitude of information, including the discovered documents uh, dating all the way back to the original series and continuing on with the next generation and uh, we'd like for you to check out two of our partner websites trekmovie.com and trekfm that's trek.fm who carry mission log every week and remember we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of mission log well ken i i feel like we really hit a high here with the big goodbye is there more coming there is indeed, John. Gather around, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, and we will tell you a story of an android. It's data lore next week. Some of the music formation log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Au revoir and bon chance mon ami. Our destiny awaits. 
from the quotable Cyrus Red Block. And transmission. <laughs>